Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guests today are Tima Bell, Associate AIA and Founding Principal, and Gina Claire Nguyen, Associate AIA and Principal, both of Relativity Architects in Los Angeles, California. Tima was born in New York City and raised in an entertainment industry family in both Venice Beach, California and Peaks Island, Maine. Tima brings a breadth of experience and leadership to Relativity Architects. He studied fine art at Rice University and architecture at the Southern California Institute for Architecture. Tima's passion for art led him to the practice of architecture as a launching point to explore the three-dimensional space within his own paintings. He is vigilant throughout the process to achieve balance between quality, style, and efficiency. As a co-founding principal of Relativity Architects, Tima continues to explore the physicality of art and architecture. He has received two AIA Hospitality Design Awards and two Boutique 18 Awards. Tima was also an adjunct professor at Woodbury University and acts as a guest juror at several Los Angeles universities. Jenna has a broad portfolio of experience from her work with a variety of organizations, including architecture firms, publications, nonprofits, and restaurant and real estate management companies. After receiving her master's in architecture degree from the University of Pennsylvania, she co-designed and built two award-winning pavilions at international exhibits in both Japan and New York. These explorations were informed by her background in painting and drawing and developed by her art degree from Pepperdine University. 
Jenna joined Relativity in 2014 and is currently the firm's associate principal and studio director. Encompassing design direction, project management, studio development, marketing, and administration. She was the recipient of the Boutique 18 Up-and-Coming Designer Award and has been a featured speaker on several panels. Rounding out her diverse practices, Jenna has been an adjunct professor of architecture at Pasadena City College and currently serves on the board of two not-for-profit organizations based in Southern California. The project we are going to chat about today is the Siren Production Studios in Hollywood, California. Relativity was engaged to create a master plan for an urban infill site in Hollywood for Siren Studios. This vision was realized through a mix of new construction, building renovations, interior design, and programmatic development. The project that launched Relativity is The Cube, a motion picture production soundstage that serves as the crown jewel of the Siren Studios campus master plan. With an interior height of more than 40 feet, the cube is perhaps the largest single-story concrete structure without beams in the Western Hemisphere. Designed to accommodate everything from high-end magazine advertisement shoots and commercials to full-length feature films, the 13,000-square-foot soundstage with an additional 3,000-square-foot annex of support space features a reinforced truss system that can support more than 10,000 pounds of rigging, enough to hang three cars. Wow. The walls are comprised of concrete blocks insulated with recycled foam, giving the interior an STC sound rating exceeding 150. A 25-foot square loading door allows a semi-tractor trailer to drive directly inside to support various types of commercial productions. Tell me something, at least maybe not directly related to architecture, interesting about you. Like, what could you tell me about you that our listeners would go, oh, that's really cool or unique or different or you know you. So either one of you can go first. Well, one thing I study and practice is the Japanese tea ceremony, which is a traditional way of of making tea and it's a bit like a martial arts in how you practice it and study it and I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yes, yeah. such a now I now I'm going to go I go google so many things after these podcast <laughs> interviews it's not even funny. And uh and for me yeah, there's a lot but uh one of the things that that would actually it's interesting because this will reflect on a lot of how the office is run is I buy land on eBay. Um, I will buy <laughs> land sight unseen on eBay. I didn't know you could. And I used to sell on eBay years ago. I didn't know you could buy land on eBay. Yes. And I have actually a method at this point. When I first started, I didn't. Uh, but I've learned a lot over time. And I now have land in like six different states and different topographies and climates and you say it's not about architecture. I mean, I think for both of us, architecture is in us. It's implied. It's inherent. It's not something that's not a job. It's who we are. Uh, as much as architecture is an art, that is something that's sort of ingrained in everything we look at and everything we do. But it's beautiful that you asked that question because Jenna's calm and sensitive and refined approach in the tea ceremonies is very different than my haphazard discovering land and purchasing it sight unseen on eBay, uh, and then going and, and doing all the necessary elements to sort of 
really discover what that what I just purchased. There's a somewhat of a chaotic element. It's organized and thoughtful, but definitely not as as calm and refined. And so Jenna brings to our firm that sensibility. And my partner and I are very much alike in that we kind of are are definitely pushing boundaries and putting things out there that are maybe not part of uh, a subdued or, or, or calm approach. I call it unrestrained energy. <laughs> That's right. I can totally relate to that. Just so, just so <laughs> you know, my motto and my hashtag is hashtag total world domination. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, so I totally get it. Um, so I was curious as I was totally trolling you on the internet how did you come to design production studios? The first studio was Siren Studios. At the time, uh, I was running the business all by myself. This was uh, just before Jenna had joined the company. I had a client who I worked for, which was Siren Studios, but not actually doing their studio. They were a photography management company at that time. They leased out photography studios that were already built and being run, but they had this vision for a, a motion picture studio. I walked in to help them permit an elevator and I heard that they had this concept for a motion picture studio. Uh, and I was near broke. I had been running my office by myself and it was really hard. And, and I heard they wanted this studio. This was a Thursday. So I went to the art store and I bought materials and over the weekend I designed a studio, a conceptual design for a studio. And I built a model and I, did drawings and I did everything possible to sort of reflect it. And when I came in for my Tuesday meeting for the elevator, I said, look, I'll get your elevator permitted, but I want to talk about that studio. And I put the model down in front of them, put the drawings on the wall and presented them a studio. And they said, this is better than anything we've seen. Let's do it. You're hired. Yeah, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's sometimes what it takes is that jump in, no matter how hot or cold the water is, take a risk and do something that you're not asked to do uh, in hopes that you can present yourself in such a way that you get accepted and, and can be successful. That was how the whole process started. I mean, is that not an example of total world domination? I mean, <laughs> that is. But the real change came as Jen is part of the firm and we talked to each other about not wanting to be in a position where a company could go under and so we looked at saying financially, what can we design in architecture that's counter-cyclical? Right. Uh, and we decided on affordable housing and motion picture studios. And you know, while we designed a lot of studios, they, they weren't necessarily being constructed until the pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic really spurred production studio demand. Everyone's at home. They're running through Netflix and Hulu and all the streaming services, and they're running out of content. And that spurred a lot of development. And right now we have over a hundred acres of production studio campuses on the drawing boards. Half of that's in construction, half of that's in design process. And it ranges from collectives of smaller scale studios to in large campus new construction. And it's not going away. We're still getting reached out to. Um, there's still developers going for it and the market hasn't saturated yet. At some point it will, because at some point there will just be enough studio space, but that's not in the, the near future. Our start was by making exciting and scary decisions and then later calculated ones that we didn't think, I mean, obviously you don't prepare for a pandemic. 
uh, we just wanted to make sure that if there was a downturn, we could keep our staff on staff. We wouldn't have to let anybody go. And we would be able to maintain an office the way we want to. And the other side of this, like everything related to development is the financial aspect. When the pandemic hit, and even now, uh, commercial offices took a dive. Uh, no one worked in offices for a year. Hedge funds had no place to put their money because people stopped building those and they needed another uh, real estate investment to, to put into. And uh, for commercial spaces, studios became the exciting thing to invest in. And that also spurred it on. Now, it's a scary investment because it's a niche market. Uh, when you build a motion picture studio, you are building just for motion pictures. It can't really be converted to other things. It can, but it's a lot of work to do it. So you're really building for a niche market. Uh, and it requires an operator as well that is likely not the developer. So there's some sort of partnership that happens in the future. It's not like a a developer builds commercial office, then goes, hires a bunch of leasing brokers and they rent out the building. It's not how you do residential and you hire an, a manager to run the management. You have to hire a very specific manager to operate your studio or else no one's coming. You can't just build the building and they'll show up. That doesn't happen. And the second side of this is that other countries and other states started offering much lower tax credits for filming. A tax credit allows the producers to write off up to 40% of their costs on a production. And that makes a difference in content production. Once everyone's doing content, now everyone's trying to do content for less. And when that happens, these other, like Canada and, and the state of Georgia and other countries in Europe are starting to realize, oh, wait a second, if we build a stage, offer a 40% tax credit, they'll film the whole film here. And that is starting to pick up as well. So that's how we're getting some opportunities in the studio production typology. You know, I kind of like to think of it as the new form of manufacturing because they are their warehouses. And to a, a certain extent, it's a factory, very creative, exciting factory, but it's producing a product that is in high demand. And, you know, several of our clients, you know, are weighing property sites against actual industrial uses or studio uses and seeing which one has the better demand in return. So let's talk about Siren Studios a little bit and get into some technical details. Tell me a little bit about that project. What were you trying to achieve with this building? Because it's got some unique components. It went through a number of steps. Originally, it was intended to be a 20,000 square foot studio. But in the process of design and permitting, we realized that there was a substation of electrical that would not allow it. And to move that substation would cost millions of dollars. So the clients on the fly decided to reduce the stage from 20,000 to 13,000 square feet. So that was an incredible challenge right there because I had already submitted it to the city. And we were in the process of getting approvals. And then I went back in with a redesign of reducing the size of the building. So that was already a challenge. But one of the most incredible innovations, it's not even innovation, it's been around for a while. It was just something not commonly used in California, is what they call an ICF block. Uh, it's an insulated concrete form. It's basically a styrofoam Lego. And uh, these styrofoam Legos stack on top of each other. You put in rebar on the inside, both horizontal and vertical, and then you pour it in eight-foot lifts. You fill it with concrete. And these styrofoam blocks act as the formwork. So you're not dealing with plywood and snap ties. And you pretty much have styrofoam stacked up. And you do it eight feet at a time. 
And in six weeks, you have a full height, 40 foot high, 50 foot high wall, and you're completed. And that was just a revelation to me that concrete could be dealt with so easily. Uh, the idea of normally doing poured in place concrete involves just a lot more mechanics and is very costly because of the formwork. The formwork being delivered in styrofoam, recycled styrofoam blocks, that was a game changer for, for how we were uh, uh, approaching studios from that point forward. And then what's also beautiful is that the, the, the styrofoam has embedded plastic vertical pieces that act as studs. So you can screw on or attach anything to the interior or exterior. So instead of having to apply all this sort of heavy waterproofing and stucco, we were able just to screw on sleepers and cement panels. We didn't even need to waterproof because it's essentially two inches of styrofoam over concrete. Nothing to waterproof. Water's not going to damage that. And so as long as you make the water kick away from the foot of the building, which you just put in a, a metal kick, the way that the building gets completed is super simple uh, and doesn't require all the different trades and things that, that would normally drive the cost up on this type of building. It's interesting what does drive the cost up is the contractors who don't know how to do this. Typically, when they apply pricing, it's way too high. And uh, we have to step in and say, okay, are you pricing it this way because you don't know or because you've actually done the research? And invariably, they, they don't have familiarity with the type of ICF form. And they are just sort of throwing a number for their learning process. And so once we correct that, the project comes in lower than anything else that we would normally propose. So you don't need the waterproofing. You don't have, there's no problem if moisture gets in the walls with mold. How? Oh, it's styrofoam and concrete. I mean, it's two inches. Imagine having a two-inch thick blanket of styrofoam ad adhered to the concrete because it's a formwork. So it, there's a lot of amazing properties to this. One, you could peel it off and just expose the concrete if that's what you wanted to do, and it would be amazing. But they do have uh, insulative properties, both uh, sound and energy. And the second part of it is it's a rain screen application, which is the way that we propose to do it. The cement panel is raised off the styrofoam, so there's no hydrostatic pressure. And the water basically gets in between the gaps of the cement panels and just runs down the styrofoam and then kicks out into and, and is drained into our whatever, our, whether it's a planter or, or going to a trench drain or whatever we have on site. It works amazingly uh, for that purpose. What's nice is you don't have to do the Tyvek wrap or, or the waterproofing wrap on the outside, but you still have to wrap the cap and waterproof to the flashing, to the, to the roof and all that. But the exterior condition is essentially, it's styrofoam, it's water resistant. It's interesting, it burns. So we had an issue where the sun would shine off an adjacent window of a building and reflect back and it left a streak of uh, melted styrofoam not deeply, but enough that it was noticeable, like a, a kind of a tan brown streak, uh, which we we immediately got covers up to, to stop that from happening. So it will melt or yellow in direct sunlight, just like styrofoam. What, what's interesting about this type of construction is that proprietarily for us, there's other ways, and I can't go too deep into it because I don't want everybody to know about it, but it does help us reduce costs. There's an element that it removes from the structural environment that will cut costs by, at this point, especially with the volatility of the market, uh, almost 30% of the other ways to design studios. That's huge. Yeah. That's what has probably moved us into the forefront of the leading uh, studio designers. So I imagine a, a studio like this has to be very versatile. Can you tell me about that a little bit and maybe some of the things you did to make it a versatile space that they can come in and do whatever it is they're going to do? 
there's complexity to it, but at the end of the day, it's a big empty box. And that's essentially what gives it its versatility. There's a lot of components that we work through with the operators, knowing the goal is this largely for television, streaming content, for film, you know, what are they aiming to produce within that? And then we provide in all of the necessary power is a major thing. The needs for data is huge, especially in the world of streaming and the need for the growing realm of XR, which is taking away green screens and a lot of on-site location. And we're putting in LED walls that people are filming on. Um, and so providing all of this infrastructure in a big empty box is essentially the, the key to it. But if you go walk into a studio space, what you see are four very tall walls, a lot of soundproofing and a very structural grid hanging from the ceiling so that whoever comes in there can do anything that they can dream of. Yeah, my favorite thing filmed at Siren was the, uh, there was a commercial where they had, I think it was for GMC trucks and they hung almost 400 individual light fixtures around the truck. And it, it looks like the truck is sitting in a field of, of, of lights. It's just fantastic. I mean, that was one of my favorite things. But one of the beautiful things about working for Siren, specifically Siren Studios, is after we, during and after we completed the project, we were able to rent a home on their back lot as, a, as our office. Uh, we, we renovated the home. It was a, a turn of the century craftsman, which we renovated, converted into our office at the very beginning. I think we only had, you know, anywhere between four to eight people at the office. But we would often walk onto this, the lot to meet with somebody on the lot because we were constantly doing upgrades and updates for, for other buildings that they had on campus. And one of the times they had a, an avocado commercial and they must have brought in every type of animal you can imagine. And so... <laughs> That were, was actually the day that I interviewed with them. That was awesome. <laughs> and Tima took me on a tour of the back lot. And there's a giraffe hanging yeah, out. Llamas, camels. Lot. Yeah, it was really fantastic. So there, there's always, that's one of the great things about working on these is there's an incredible amount of inventiveness and uh, I would say a, a yes atmosphere. Very positive. It's very thoughtful. And it's, it's very aggressive, but no is not really an answer that, that is accepted by production companies, nor the developers that are trying to make these spaces. So we have to be very thoughtful about how we approach these and on the fly, be able to adjust and, and make decisions and adjustments for the clients, the tenants and all the different aspects that go into it. Tell me about the cube. Well, it ended up being 108 by 108 the dimensions of the actual studio area were a square. Um, there was an, an, an element that was added on to the front of the building uh, that contained bathrooms um, and a small production office that, that could be uh, leased out or wardrobe or hair or makeup. 108 by 108 is relatively small for a studio. It's basically for commercial-based, audience-based like game shows or interestingly enough, events. And events were quite common. Uh, one gentleman had a bat mitzvah for his daughter, a $2 million bat mitzvah, where he rented out Siren and created a whole sort of wonderland on the interior. So between there are also uh, pickup uh, shots. Uh, they did Fury Road, Gravity. A number of, of movies were shot inside of Siren that weren't the total movie, but pickups. Um, so they called it the Cube because of its dimensions, uh, and it gave a great name for branding. 
but the type of uh, elements that would be shot in there, basically commercials, events, swing sets, and live audience shows. You know, I thought I worked on just about every type of project there was in this business. And now I'm going, okay, the closest thing I've done is a high school auditorium, which is <laughs> even remotely close. But I do know some of the special consultants that we had to hire just to do a, a building like that. Tell me a little bit about the unique products or systems or materials that you have to use or things you have to do to, to design a studio. I mean, thinking of STC ratings, it's incredibly important. Insole Quilt is a product that has to wrap the inside of the studio to deaden every bit of sound that could possibly come. That's probably number one. Yeah. I think as a unique product for this, this studio typology. And they hold a patent and have two looms and they build it here in Gardena and they literally will make, they're running operations almost 24 hours and they make the blanket that covers the interiors of studios worldwide. Doing as many studios as we do, we, we've gotten to know the uh, operations, you know, we've been able to make deals and, and uh, they don't reduce their prices for anybody. They have the market cornered. Uh, we have encountered Chinese product doesn't have the same qualities. Invariably, uh, a bounce will be heard and that that kills it. Sound is incredibly important. When we did the studios for Dancing with the Stars, uh, we had to put in a secondary floor system that would deaden the, the pounding uh, of the feet uh, so that they were able to film. You can't get rid of it completely, but definitely soften. So um, uh, elevated floor systems with base isolator sort of rubber sandwiches underneath that allow for impact uh, to reduce noise. Um, we do a spray applied foam roof uh, oh. because typically rain on a roof, if it's depending on how the roof is completed, but rain can cause problems. Not that we have a ton of it in Southern California, but right. when we do, it can shut production down. And then there's a whole list of mufflers and silencers and grill diffusers for the air conditioning systems that are necessary for sound mitigation. Do you use special consultants? Yeah, we, we incorporate special consultants, uh, both for our uh, um, sound mitigation, acoustic. Uh, we do some for lighting. The biggest one that has made the most impact recently has been low voltage data, mm -hmm. uh, and specifically related to the new and upcoming XR stages. That was just a whole product that we had to learn about incorporating because uh, that is the rising market, are these sort of LED wall stages and how they will supplant the regular stage over time and what their needs are, um, how you have to design for them for power, for cabling, for just the way people work inside of them and on them. That was a, a, a learning experience. I do want to clarify that we have an interesting office. We know of other studio architects that are extremely consultant heavy, which is great, more power to them. But my partner, Scott, and I started our business as a design build firm. And so that ethos of figure it out and do it yourself pervades. And we bring it in and we ask people to look at it. It doesn't mean you can't work with a consultant, but it means you need to do as much thinking as they do on their aspect. You can't just hand it to them, take back what they give us and, and run with it. There needs to be distinct conversations about what's expected, what we know and what we'd like to implement. And then uh, discovery on our end at the same time so that when they come back to us, we're prepared and not trying to relearn something or read something that we, and it, like, almost as if it's in a different language. We want to understand that. And you'd be surprised. We're not designing sprinkler lines for liability, but we understand how they fly through a building and how they need to be attached and how much water they carry and how heavy they are. 
because we have always felt as architects, the sort of gestalt approach, know everything about how to how these things go together so that you're well informed when the consultant shows up that you need to ha- need to work. What was your biggest lesson learned from this project that you took forward to the next studio you designed? From the Cube specifically, I learned everything about studios because I had never done a production studio before. I've been on set maybe once for a random reason, but I got to see the inner workings from having been in the office on the back lot and being able to go inside and see how the structure functioned taught me how productions need to operate. And that has been the driving lesson in knowing where to orient the entry to the bathrooms and knowing you know, the distance between the mill and the stage space and what obstacles have to be removed in that path of circulation. I think it was understanding how much operations needs to be involved in the decision-making process. A lot of projects, you can get a general program, maybe some slight adjustments, and you're finished. Uh, and you design it and build it and you put in your flare or whatever and, and, and you're done. Operations is such an integral part to how these studios function that a misplaced corridor, a duct or a door that doesn't have the right clearance aspect to it, the way the building loads, all the different aspects that relate to the use of the building really need to be thought out beforehand. And it's funny because it's a windowless box. I mean, if you were to tell an architect, designed a windowless box, it's relatively easy. I did an archive building for the Woodbury University, and that is a windowless box, and that one wasn't special. <laughs> Studios, because they're an active use and that the uses change on that interior, your earlier question, what kind of stuff goes on in there? Well, anything and everything. So the flexibility for their uh, use of anything and everything needs to really be thought out. And the operations guys, specifically the front of house guys, the ones that are down there on the ground figuring out how to appease these production companies, those guys, you have to listen to them and you have to understand what their needs are and try and accomplish them as as best you can. No, and that makes total sense. Um, So I wasn't going to ask this question, but I have to. I was going to be really good and not do the whole movie star thing. But my understanding is that there is some um, family... family background in the entertainment industry that might have played some part in you ending up here? So my my father uh, was an actor. Um, he was acting on stage, uh, then motion pictures and television my whole life. Uh, we moved out here in, when I was born, 1972, and he did uh, major motion pictures, TV. Uh, I did them for a little bit at a younger age. I've been on sets and surrounded by movies my whole life. And then when I was around 13, uh, he, he divorced my mom. He married Esther Williams, who she she was a major motion picture movie yeah. star for MGM uh, in the 40s. At one time, the only woman to lead box office seats in the country. That has since changed. But back then, that was a really big deal. Uh, she was an Olympic swimmer, Olympic athlete. And it's funny because the leading men had to be able to swim She's passed away, but she was incredible to sit and talk to about this because she's very frank and very straightforward. I mean, Gene Kelly couldn't swim. Fred Astaire couldn't swim. Dancing, no problem, but they couldn't swim. So they couldn't be in the type of movie that Esther would do. They actually did a film together where she was the first person to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. It was written for a movie called Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Okay. Uh, and Esther sang that. Uh, but 
in general, she's just a very specific individual movie star. And so to be around her in Hollywood growing up and going to events and meeting all of her, her contemporaries and then current stars in the 90s and and it was just incredible to be around all of that. And it did give you a true understanding to the diva-esque atmosphere that surrounds some of the celebrities. It's not quite the same celebrity culture we have now where, you know, a TikTok influencer can be a celebrity, but that sort of old movie star sensibility uh, uh, still pervades to some degree throughout the industry. And there is a conscious understanding that you know, Shonda Rhimes will need her own bathroom on her executive office. So we better design that in the building. These are small things, but they gather the tenant. And that is extremely important for architecture to be able to grasp that. If I was a developer going out designing a studio, which I'm pretty sure is not going to happen in my lifetime, that would be so key in who I was looking to hire um, because it's such a unique animal. So I've already run you over, so I'm going to quickly give you my final question. So my question is, what is your world domination statement? Personal or professional, what mark do you hope? It doesn't even have to be about work. It could be personally, but what mark do you hope to leave on the world? I'll approach the professional side of it. And I'd like everyone to approach business like architects. I think as architects, our job is to creatively resolve and integrate multiple systems that have their own needs and conflicts um, and make them work together in one cohesive unit. And I think that whether you're running a business or running a government or an agency or a city or a school or whatever it might be, that the more we can impart systematic thinking and integration of multiple systems into one, I just think that's going to resolve just a whole host of social and political and entrepreneurial uh, needs that are out there. I I think about it a lot. Uh, My partner and I actually met in graduate school first day. And by the third year of graduate school, we had started our own business And um, it was called the consortium, the Sullivan Bell Design Consortium. And the concept was we would bring all of the people we've met in graduate school and work with them to create amazing spaces and make amazing furniture. And it did. It started and then it failed. And it was it was back and forth and being able to rely on people. And it was just very difficult. Everyone had different agendas. Um, We split apart for a while and then came back together to form Relativity and then quickly hired Jenna in the same way and, and, and have her as an associate principal. But one of the things that we do is, is what we mentioned earlier about the way we run the firm and the collaborative element. And the intention of this firm is really when people leave, they leave to go start their own firm. And I would love the sensibilities that we instill on the people that work here about how to run an architecture firm or how to be an architect pervade and carry on and get taught to the next generation and the next generation, I have a firm belief that we're doing it the right way. Uh, We are not making more money than everyone else. Uh, We are not the most successful. We're not the most ballyhooed. We're not a star architect. Um, And and it's funny because we'd love all those things to happen, but not at the expense of running the firm the way we wanted to and creating architects from right out of school to where they're comfortable leaving our, our company to go do their own work. 
that means a lot. That is the pervading aspect. That's our my world domination is that the relativity architects is like the Genghis Khan of architecture. We're just <laughs> spawning, you know, architects into the world that carry our, our tradition and, and, uh, and ethos. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.